Hello, welcome to Aim High, the CK Alumni Podcast. With me today is Rob Edwards, class of 1981. Rob is a screenwriter, and hey, I'm going to hand it over to you for a quick intro. Oh, okay. Yeah, a screenwriter. I was at Cranbrook. Actually, it started the Film Production Society. And、uh, during a January term, which I don't know if you know about, I taught a film class, and we made a film that I used as my entrance. Film for Syracuse University, where I was a film student, and then came out here. I've been working on all kinds of stuff in TV. I did、uh, Full House, In Living Color, Fresh Prince of Bel Air. Geez, a, a ton of shows, and then went over to Disney, where I wrote Treasure Planet and Princess and the Frog. I also worked on Wreck It Ralph and Tangled and Frozen. So yeah, I had a, I had a good good time. I was gonna say, all right, keep on going. It's, it's <laughs> the end. Oh yeah, now currently I just finished working on a project for Marvel. I'm writing and directing my first film, and I have a short film that、uh, just won a, a couple of awards. Yeah, life is great. Oh yeah, I'm also married. <laughs> married 31 years, and I have two sons. And、uh, where are you currently? I'm、uh, currently in Beverly Hills, California, where it is as un. Cranbrook-like in weather as possible. <laughs> it is seventy-two degrees and sunny and wonderful every day. So much for like dressing in layers and、uh, keeping a sweater in my backpack. It, it's just gorgeous out here. Okay, so there's a lot to dive into from <laughs> what you just said this past minute. Let's start at the very beginning. So you're saying, all right, Castor at Cranbrook. You know, tell me about that film project. Oh yeah, it was great. They had this thing. Do you still have it? A, a January term. Where there was like a week off, and anybody could teach anything that they wanted. So the librarian would teach sci-fi、uh, short stories, and one of the I think science teachers taught us how to make a model railroad. And just everybody would teach. They would teach what they loved, and I decided to make a movie. So I had eight students, and I wrote and directed this movie that we shot on campus in Super Eight. And yeah, it was just a, a blast to make. I took it home, put music on it, edited it, and then took it out to festivals. And where I was competing against Sam Raimi, who directed one of the better Spider-Mans, and yeah, I guess he's also a Detroiter and also is about my age, and was also like taking films around to festivals. So he and I would go back and forth as to who was the headliner of various festivals, and then I took that to Syracuse, and they said, "Wow, this is、uh, this is really great." And I went there and. Had a great time. I am currently a, an adjunct professor of screenwriting for their Syracuse and Los Angeles program. So kids come out here. I get to beat them up and teach them how to teach them how to write screenplays. So when you're at Cranbrook, was there a teacher that really inspired you to write screenplays? That yes. I, okay. Who is that? Yeah, actually, there was a troika. Let's say there was a, a teacher in my tenth grade year, Chris Olson. Actually, funny. Yeah. Lesser-known story. When I was in seventh grade, I was actually in remedial English. I had come in from a public school, and it was just、uh, it ruined me for whatever reason. Like I had the best grades in my class, but yeah, I was just really a, a slow reader and, and terrible with note taking and stuff like that. So Fran Dagbovi actually taught me how to speed read and take quick notes. And then I was with like three or four other students, and we had time to catch up with your English. And that for me became a challenge. So I was like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take this thing on. I gotta up my game. By tenth grade, I was in this class with a guy named Chris Olson. Was, he taught a class at、uh, Kingswood English, and he gave me this option. I'd written an, an essay, and he told me this is an okay essay. It's a C. You will get a C for it. 
But if you rewrite it and you get an A, I will average the C and the A, I'll give you a B. And if you keep re rewriting it, I'll continue to average out whatever the last two grades were, and I'll just keep upping your grade. And I was like, that is great. It felt like it was robbing, you know, <laughs> like stealing from the school. Yeah, so I rewrote my paper, and he said, okay, this is good. This is a B. Also, I'm going to give you the B and the C, whatever. It's a nice B minus. You want to keep going? I was like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I rewrote it again. I got an A, and he upped my grade again. And he let me do that all the way through the semester. As a teacher now, I'm like, wow, I... I was willing to do the work. I was willing to just continue to rewrite my papers. But as I would continue to do it, I just got better and better at writing my first draft of my essays. And by the end of it, I, I felt very confident about writing, writing essays and writing short stories in general. And we had one time when we wrote fiction. And he said, wow, your fiction is so much better than your prose, than your essays. You should you know, let me introduce you to some people. And he, among other things, like gave me some things to read, some short stories to read. And he talked about Mrs. Pangborn, who had, during January term, she taught a class in sci-fi writing, reading and writing. And I wrote a bunch of short stories for her. And she's like, oh, my God, these are amazing, which was as a little tiny child at Cranbrook, where you just feel like everybody else is way smarter than you. It was good to have something that I thought I was really good at. She wound up showing my stuff to some famous science fiction writers. And they wrote back and said, wow, the kids got potential. Keep going. So I was super thrilled about that. And then the third part of the Troika was I was taking a class with uh, Dr. Jeff Welch. And it was, I think it was stage to screen was this class he was teaching. Uh, it was kind of an English alternate. And we were studying stage plays and we were in how to convert them into screen, into screen plays. And how some famous plays had been made into movies and stuff like that. And as our final project, we were supposed to write an adaptation of a play. And I took the Hamlet and I took a big scene from Hamlet. And instead of Hamlet making a play to embarrass his, his parents, I made it that Hamlet was a young filmmaker who made a short film to show to his family and transcribed it and updated it. And uh, Jeff Welch was just really great. And just continued to encourage me. And from that, I started to write my own stuff. And the next January term, I taught the class in filmmaking with a script that I had written and took it all the way through. It was a blast. But I do often think that Cranbrook, being a school that, that is so heavy in literature, so heavy in theater, so heavy in the arts and, and all of those, why it isn't more film-centric, you know, why we don't have an active film program there and why I don't hear from more screenplay writers out of Cranbrook. Throughout this entire Cranbrook writing journey, starting from 7th grade, what about the way that Cranbrook taught writing encouraged you to continue wanting to be a better writer? Because mm. it sounds like in 7th grade, you did not think you're a good writer at all. But, <laughs> but something in this community, there's some faith in, in your ability, right? Exactly. It was funny because in 7th grade, there was this guy, our teacher was Mr. Richley. And the first thing he gave us to read was The Hobbit. It's fun reading, but it's super dense reading. It's like nothing means anything. You know, there's no concreteness to any of it. It's like, wait, what are these things? Everything you have to pretty much figure out what it is. And so I was just, oh, man, I had just such a hard time. <laughs> like, why can't we just read? Like, Catcher in the Rye, 
okay, good, I get it. It takes place on Earth, and there are human beings who do human being things. And some of the other books, Contiki, okay, I get that. Whatever, it's a guy in a boat, and off he goes. But man, The Hobbit just gave me, it gives me chills just thinking about my seventh grade reaction to it now. Also, you should know, I was a boarder, so I couldn't really go to my parents and say, hey, could you explain this book to me? <laughs> you know? Yeah, so I started in a massive hole. And for me, it was more the challenge of, I think until then, like I said, I was a superstar in elementary school. I went to a French elementary school and then a public elementary school. By the time I was in seventh grade, like I was fluent in French and I, I thought I was the smartest kid in the world. And here was this thing that like, wow, okay, here's something I do not know. And it's just sitting there and I can either just lay down or really just dive into it and try to figure out, okay, well, what is great literature and what makes good and great literature great? And who are the great authors and why are they the great authors? As an African-American student, I was the only African-American student in seventh and eighth grade. Who are the great black authors and all of this? In French school, obviously, we're not studying a lot of American literature. <laughs> and in public school, it was all multiple choice questions. So there wasn't a lot of take a book and read it and tell me about it. So seventh grade was actually my first real experience with novels, sitting down, reading a novel, talking about it in school. And of course, everybody that went to Brookside had read a bunch of novels and they were way ahead of me. Yeah. So it was like the challenge. I wasn't going to back down from the challenge. I never do. And so I just dove into it. And by the end of it, I thought I had a pretty good understanding of it. And what I really loved was dialogue and action and trying to dissect the movies that I loved. And Star Wars came out around that time, too. And Star Wars was like magic to me. It was going back to The Hobbit and everything. It was like, oh, wow, you can make movies that are that astounding. There is no limit to the mind, what the mind can put on screen. And I thought, OK, I want to do that. <laughs> you know? And then after that, it was just, OK, study, 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 really lean into it and try to figure out where was going to be my place in, in American literature. Yeah. So part of this process, you mentioned just learning what what makes good literature, or what makes great literature. You know, I'm curious from your perspective. Yes. What is that difference? And also related, like what makes a good screenwriter versus a great screenwriter? Good versus great to me. There's this concept that I heard. I was actually listening to a lecture on art, on just paintings. And the person was talking about this combination of what's called heart, head, and hand. Head is the idea. Is it Picasso? Oh, hey, great. You can deconstruct or cubism, that kind of thing. You can really, it has the essence of it and it pulls you in by virtue of how it's done. Magritte's painting are what he's able to do with painting. Miro, what he does with torn paper. So head is the idea. Hand is the craftsmanship, your ability to compose a painting or compose a, a symphony that will it sound like uh, what it's supposed to sound like. A song has a certain shape to it, a certain structure to it. And then heart, the biggest part of it, heart, which is your personal experiences, what you bring to the work. And can you do something that is truly wonderful within that? And if you have a nice balance of heart, head, and hand, those paintings, those that music, those sculptures, everything, they just become so much better. A lot of people forget that. A lot of people are just like, oh, it's well-crafted and, and it was a great idea, but I'm not in it. I don't need to be in it. And then that's, it's good, but it's not great. Or something that has your heart in it and is well-crafted, but doesn't have a new idea in it. It's like, okay, fine, but I've seen it before. And the other way, if you're any element that you miss is going to suffer, it's either going to seem dry or boring 
or ill-conceived if any one of those three is missing and and you will perceive it as good but it won't move you it won't excite you so that's where i start is like with every project i look in and i say okay there was a question we know we would always ask at disney and it was where are you in treasure planet are you telling your own story rob where are you are you the boy are you the cyborg in princess and the frog i'm both characters i truly relate to both tiana and naveen in there because i work hard to be tiana and i i went to cranbrook and i'm a you know whatever i'm a prince among men so i i relate on both sides and I was telling such a personal story in that one that my wife sat next to me. She'd never heard anything. She'd never seen anything that we were doing. I don't talk about my work when I come home. And so we get all the way there. We go to the premiere and she's watching it and she's elbowing me all the way through it because there's dialogue taken directly from our dates all the way through, you know, all the way through the movie. And in the end, she was just like crying her eyes out. And she said, it's the most beautiful movie I've ever seen. Because it was so revelatory of the two of us, so personal, two of us, almost, you know, a love letter to her in a way. Yeah. So that to me is the difference between good and great. How do you know when you've hit the right mix of those three elements? Was it feel like? Yeah, it is the, it is one of the hardest things I think that any artist does because you're really at all times looking for a great idea, something hopefully that hadn't been thought of before. And a, your hand, your ability to execute it, that just gets better with years. So you, you don't really have to worry too much about that part of it. And then what it means to you. And a lot of projects that I, I wind up doing, especially at Disney, they've been around forever. Like Frozen was there since Disney in the 50s wanted to do something about the Ice Queen or uh, yeah, the Ice Queen, I believe it was, which is a, a grim fairy tale. And it's and it is grim. It, it's super, super dark. And that was a, a matter of just sitting in a room with the director, with Chris, and just thinking, what do we want to do? What do we think about when we think about winter? When we think about ice? When we think about snowball fights? When we think about making a snowman? We were like, oh, snowman. Yes. We wrote down snowman or whatever. We got to have a snowman in a movie. And then wouldn't it be cool to be like Frozone and be able to freeze people? Oh, that would be awesome. Make big ice sculptures. Okay, ice sculpture. And that's got to be in the movie. And then you just go like, what makes you happy? What makes you smile? And trying to find in there a, can you make your own favorite movie? That's one thing we're always talking about. Make your own favorite movie. Sit down in a chair, in a hypothetical chair, as you're just sitting about to write. And imagine yourself in the theater and you've got your popcorn and I put M&Ms in mine. So I've got my popcorn with my M&Ms and the screen opens. And what do you see? And whatever it is should be the f your favorite opening sequence, your favorite fade in, your favorite characters should jump up on from the screen. You should be delighting yourself all the way through it and really making your own favorite movie so that you yourself are crying when you see it and you yourself are laughing at all the jokes and you yourself are truly identifying with the story that goes. If you've done that, if you've truly pleased yourself, then chances are you've also pleased your friends and probably your family, and by extension, 500 million <laughs> other people you know, will have a similar experience. I'm always talking to people who say, with Princess and the Frog, that they just cried their eyes out. And they'll say, oh, I've seen it 10 times and I cry my eyes out every time. And I say, I've seen it like 80 times and I cry my eyes out every time. <laughs> I just love that movie. And it, it gets me because I wanted to be God. I studied like, what do I cry about? And what truly moves me in movies? Where do I really, you know, where do movies surprise me? And break down those elements. And then I'm like, okay, 
put them in the movie. So working with the team during the writing process, say, yes, you had your vision for your favorite movie. What happens when someone else has your version of their favorite movie and it doesn't, it's not the same or it's not similar enough. It's like a totally different direction. How do you navigate that? Yeah. Collaboration is kind of an art form that a lot of times uh, I'll say on uh, Princess and the Frog again, there were two directors and there's a guy who's called the head of story. He's the head of the storyboards, all the artwork and stuff. And this guy, Don Hall, eventually did Big Hero 6 and he directed and yeah, he was just an amazing guy. So the four of us would sit down around the table and all four of us are pretty, well, first we're pretty strong-willed and we are guys who have been doing this a lot. So we all had very specific ideas of what the best Princess and the Frog would be. And you just fight it out. You know, really, it's uh, passion versus passion. There were all these drawings of our room because people would say, are you guys okay? Because we'd just be yelling at each other in the room. And not yelling, you know, it never get, it never got personal, but it was always, if anything, it was like, you're trying to ruin my movie, you know, but each of us were like, you're birthing a child and you have very strong ideas and the other people, sometimes their ideas are just clouding yours and destroying your beautiful concept of your perfect movie. And then you realize sometimes you'll go home after a heated argument and you'll say, maybe there was something to what he was saying. <laughs> this is a guy who's you know pretty well respected and he's made a lot of good movies too. So yeah, maybe tomorrow I'll, I'll bring him a piece of candy and <laughs> you know, apologize and try to work through his idea. And that's that becomes fun. And one other thing I like to do is, is sometimes I will lose an argument and I'll say, okay, fine, I'll go, I'll write it. And my idea is to write it wrong, write the best possible version of the bad idea rather than just like stopping the process. I'm not going to write anything I don't believe in. You know, you just write the wrong thing and you hope that when they see it, they'll say, oh, this is not very good. And they'll, they'll go back and they'll say, okay, maybe what was that idea you had again? Oh, I happen to have it here. And you'll do that. And sometimes in that process of writing something that I don't believe in, I will find a way to make it work. And I'll say, okay, I get what it is you want. And I put what you want and what I want in this thing. And I think it's better than what we were talking about before. And then it, it just works. And you're excited because for me, it's the joy of collaboration is it's more than you could ever have thought of yourself. There's this term at Disney called plus it. It's your idea with a little bit of, a little bit of jet booster. And it inevitably comes out just much better. And the animators will plus it and the designers will plus it. And the composer, you know, Randy Newman would come in and he would just have a, we would have a, a crappy song, a temporary song to go into place. And Randy would come back. Okay, I know what you're talking about. And he would come back in with this just amazing idea. It's amazing song. And that's, it's the joy of the process. It's really teamwork at its best where you're sharing souls in order to tell a really great story. Another fun thing that happens is in order to get to those places, you wind up really sharing intimate stories about your own past, why these things are important to you, and why you want to tell the story in a certain way. As you're doing that, everybody will share their stories about like how they met their wife, or how they the love of their life, or whatever it is, or how their parents met, or any relationship that you're doing. There's a lot of, as much as there's yelling, there's often crying, and we're just talking about these things that really mean something to us. And those stories wind up inspiring everybody else. Yeah, we got it in the movie. And it's a better kind of teamwork than I've ever experienced in my life. And it's like not working sometimes. Don't tell anybody that pays me, but I would do it for free. It's an amazing job to have.
when during this process when you guys are going at each other there's feedback and all you mentioned not taking it personally how do you not take it personally because for me you know there's one element of you just mentioned you need to insert yourself in there the heart element so there's already some personal aspect to it and then second my mind many artists or, or people musicians people who work in arts it is very personal right so how do you separate yourself during that process i guess when you're taking feedback it is not easy when i was fresh out of college and i started working even when i was on like the living color and fresh prince and i was in my early 20s on those shows the yeah somebody would say something like oh that's not funny and I would just have to go back to my room, you know, and, and kind of deal with it. Like, you are a funny person. You are very, very funny. You know, <laughs> look in the mirror. Okay, you're, you're going to be fine. Because it, it can slice and dice you because you really do. It's a product from your mind. These little mind babies, you know. And people will just kind of like, nah, it doesn't work, whatever. And they'll just stomp it out because everybody has a different taste and ideas are whatever they are. And you realize at a certain point, like, oh, he's not, he didn't kill the joke because he hates me. <laughs> he killed the joke because it's not as funny as it could be. So come up with a better joke. And once you take the focus away from yourself and put it on the work, it's about the show. It's about the movie. It's about whatever it is you're doing. Then just the world becomes a better place. You know, you can obviously work faster because you're not taking it personally. And yeah, you just get better work done. It's okay, great. I got six more jokes and you can just replace it. It's funny because of course, as I teach and I will myself give notes to students, I'll see those same eyes that I used to look at people with when I was a kid. It's like, I just slapped them. And, uh, and, uh, and it's like, oh no, I don't mean this as a thing. Like, I just want you to get better as a writer. And I'll have to talk them down. Obviously, I am teaching them something that doesn't happen in Hollywood because <laughs> nobody really cares about your feelings. But it is something that I'm mindful of because I, the way I experienced it. But yeah, it is. there is no real trick to it. You just have to go out of body and just say, the maybe I should give this one a little bit more uh, work. Or since they've killed my joke, this was a challenge I used to do. Since they've killed my joke, it is now upon me to come up with a joke that beats my own joke. So I would just be pitching and pitching until I got stuff. And by doing that, it was actually a really good habit for me because on Fresh Prince, between takes, what you don't what a lot of people don't realize is that you're rewriting the show all week. You have one week to do it every show. And a draft goes down to the table and the actors read it and the actors are all really good. But occasionally there's like, okay, there's some duds. There's some jokes that just don't work. You circle them all and then you go back into the writing room and you... You rewrite those. Sometimes there are scenes that don't work and all kinds of stuff. And you're rewriting and rewriting. Then the audience comes in on Friday and they watch the show. And even then, there are some things where you've maybe been kidding yourself all week and saying, no, 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 this is funny. This will get a joke. This will get a laugh. And the audience doesn't laugh. And there's this kind of panic like, oops, <laughs> you know, do we want to just sweeten it, you know, put fake laughs on it, or maybe we should rewrite that joke. And this guy, uh, Andy Borowitz, who's now writes for The New Yorker, he was the head, one of the head writers, along with his wife, Susan. And he and I would run down to the stage, and we would just start pitching jokes. Andy was really facile with the joke, and so was I, because I'd kind of developed this thing of don't take anything personally. I didn't care whose joke it was. 
It just, it was about the work and it was about getting the best joke out there. So yeah, get yourself out of the, get yourself out of it. Try to make it personal, but not so personal that it's just bruising to you. Yeah. And go. Another way to look at it too, I'll say, is that you're not really telling personal stories. You're telling stories that are meaningful to you, that resonate. Yeah. I'm talking about like my courtship with my wife, but I'm not you know, directly, it's two frogs, right? It's a prince from a faraway land and this woman. I relate to them, but I'm not them. And it's not, I'm not directly talking about my own story, but I am telling uh, kind of universal truths. And the universal truths are the ones that really resonate, where you tell a story and somebody goes, oh my goodness, that happened to me too. And, and you go, okay, good. Now I'm in, a, I'm in a good area. And those are the stories that you tell. So that's why I say like when it's personal, that's the heart part of it. The opposite of that is that you're just kind of inventing things that you think other people will understand or will, you know, things that will resonate with other people. And those, that's always like hacky and and like contrived. Because a lot of times when we do that, we're just stealing from movies that we've seen. And that's, oh God, please don't make more derivative movies, you know? (laughs) So yeah. Yeah, so it always starts from yourself, personal experience, but at the same time, it's not your story. It's something, it's an element that is a part of your story. Oh yeah, absolutely. So it it seems like there's also this common theme of just tenacity, right? When something goes wrong, it seems like you always take it as a challenge. I wonder, did that come naturally to you or did you learn that tenacity? Oh, that's interesting. I think a little of both. I think I was always a kind of a tenacious kid. I don't remember not being that. I think it was interesting because on on my block, when I was growing up, there were all these kids that were about my age, but everybody was about a year older than me. So I was three three years old playing with four-year-olds and four playing with fives and stuff. And always just trying to keep up with those, with all the other kids because I wanted to play with them. And a year when you're like five or six is a long, long time. It's like a decade. And so I just remember saying like, oh, I'm not going to give up. I'm just going to whatever. I'd fall out of a tree and say, oh, I'm not hurt. Whatever. It's <laughs> that kind of thing because I just wanted to hang. And I think also like my parents, my dad's a doctor. And my dad was, I'll say he was from the West Indies, from Guyana. And he was, you look at his med school picture, he was the only black doctor in his med school in Indiana University. And my mom was a research chemist, and she was not only the only African-American in her graduating class, she was the only woman in her graduating class. So they were always, anytime I would say, oh, this is hard, I don't want to do it, they would say, like, they had zero sympathy. (laughs) My mom would just give me more books to read and stuff on the subject until I got up to speed. And so I think it was, like, tenacious out of necessity. And then, of course, that was one thing that I really loved Cranbrook for is that everybody was that kid. Everybody that I knew was super driven and just, you didn't find a lot of guys who would just give up on stuff. Everybody was really competitive and in there. And it was kind of good for me to see other people who often I didn't think, oh, he's not smarter than me. He's not better than me. <laughs> Whatever. If he can do this, then I can do this. Okay, fine. It's on, buddy. And, and just going there and doing that. And then the same thing at Syracuse, just comparing myself to other people and saying, like, okay, these guys, they think they're sharp, but they're, they haven't seen me uh, yet. And then, of course, getting out to Hollywood and where everybody, it's crazy the amount of competition out here just for jobs, for everything, because you're going from job to job. So everything, tenacity is a given. You don't get anywhere if you're not, because everybody's going to tell you no. And you will get a, I was just talking to a friend of mine, it was the guy who played the um, alligator in Princess and the Frog, this guy, uh, Michael Leon Woolley. 
And he said he auditioned a hundred times before he got his first part. And you wonder like, okay, each one of those, you have to gear yourself up. You have to audition. You have to go. And then you have to let somebody say no and let it not affect you. So that you can have the same energy for the second one or the third one or whatever. And you get up to 99 and I'm sure everybody is saying, go home. Just go work at a restaurant, do whatever you're going to do and whatever. And then to go into the hundredth one with that same excitement and have somebody say yes. And I think your reaction isn't, oh, thank you. Oh, boy, this is wonderful. It's like, oh, finally, somebody got it. There are 99 idiots (laughs) before you and off you go. So I think it's I think that, yeah, Hollywood breeds out the non-tenacious. And especially now, like looking at looking back over a more than 35-year career. None of the guys who wrote Fresh Prince are still working. None of them are still writing. And I'm pretty sure, like, of the guys who were, who I worked with on on Living Color, I don't know if any of those guys are still going. I think a handful of guys from, like, Full House, whatever, but it's very strange to look back and say, I'm still here, and I'm still doing stuff that's hopefully relevant, and I'm still finding new ideas, new fun ideas. For the guys who haven't continued writing, is that because of burnouts or yeah you burn out and burning out it's a tough people will talk about burnout but i think burnout is sometimes a convenient thing but the industry changes first it mulches it's just like ideas just go if you can't hear a new idea and say hey i just had an experience that's very similar and it left me thinking i had a couple sleepless nights about it i'd like to explore it in this movie that's a wonderful thing if you can't if you say i don't know what i'm going to do with this then that's tough Also, if you can't keep up with the way stories are told now, which is very different from the way stories were told 10 years ago or 20 years ago, if you can't look at it and say, oh, Spider-Verse changed the game for everybody. We just tell stories in a different way now. And there are other movies that are just like, okay, we gotta, there's a brisker pace. People, when my sons are watching TV, they'll be on their cell phones, on their laptops and watching TV. And they don't miss a beat on any of the three. They're having three separate things are going on. And you have to respect that. That if you if people sit down in a movie theater and they don't have laptops and they don't have cell phones, although some people rudely will you know, just kind of like get on their cell phones in a movie theater. But if they don't have any of those two, you have to engage them on a screen as if they have all three. So it just changes and changes. And if you can't keep up with that pace, yeah, it's going to get super frustrating for you. You're going to get beaten out by either younger writers or writers like me who are a little bit more protean, a little bit more adaptable. And yeah, life is just going to be tough. And so a lot of people just, they get frustrated and they drop out. Or they make a ton of money on the first one or two things that they that they do and then they just cash out. But a lot of them just go home or it is cheaper to live just about anywhere else in the world than here. And the pension for writers is great. So you can pretty much live a comfortable life anywhere else, you know, and just have some fun. So that lure is always there. For me, I, I want to die with my boots on. So I, I'm like, I love the challenge of new stuff and just seeing if I can break new stories. I love, love telling stories. I love breaking the structure of it. The hand part of it doesn't come easy. You really have to work at it. And I try to give myself experiences, enough kind of new, fresh experiences so that I always have things that I'm curious about that I want to talk about. And that's it, is to have something to say is probably the most important thing or the most important attribute a writer can have is the urge or the drive, sometimes the neurotic 
insatiable drive to say things, to tell the world like, okay, it needs to be better and here's how. That's what makes it just a ton of fun. In your career, was Excel as the biggest failure? And in the same way, like one of the biggest learning lessons you've had? Biggest failure? Huh. That's a good question. It may have been, I don't know. It's, I would say probably the first thing I ever did because I, and it, I'll go from the end to the beginning. That the end is that when the show was canceled, I I felt helpless. I felt, wow, I wish I could have done something to save the show. I wish I had the skill set to do something and go. And that fear that has driven me through my career. Moving back, what happened was I was working on this show, a show that I liked. It was my, the first show I'd ever worked on. I was on staff and you know I liked the crew and I liked the other writers and it was fun. I met the directors I had fun with. Bill Bixby, who played the Hulk, was one of the directors. He was just a great guy to hang out with. And we were doing things. When I started, they just had me in a, like almost a training rotation. And there were a lot of people who were, who were writing. There were joke guys. And then there were story guys. And I was kind of just thrown in the middle of like, yeah, go write jokes. Jokes are easy. Just give us three jokes for this thing. Or we'll circle little parts of the script and you, you'll just go and write jokes. Now, the joke writers were on the other side of the lot. You know, we were in trailers on the other side of the lot. The story guys would do all the work. And the people who were running the show were story guys. And they were just in the trenches just trying to figure out, like, how are they going to tell those stories? And they also had better offices. So I wanted to be a story guy in the, in the very beginning. So I got in with them. They taught me a bunch of stuff. And I started breaking stories. And I think we were only about 10 episodes in. But we were only three episodes on the air and they canceled the show. And I was just starting to get my rhythm and the show was gone. And I felt terrible. And then I was like, okay, I, I got to learn how to tell better, better stories. I want this to be, I want everything I work on to be really successful. And so I, I took that into the next show that I worked on, which was the show Gung Ho, which actually took place in Detroit. It was about the Japanese automakers in a small place and had uh, the guy who was on Quantum Leap was the star of it. And there was this wonderful Japanese cast who had worked together for a million years in theater and on the, in the movie and, and stuff like that. And when that show was canceled, that was like the same kind of thing, like nine episodes and then off the air. Ron Howard was producing and some of my favorite writers, these guys, Lowell Gans and Babalu Mandel were amazing. They created the show. When that show was canceled, Everybody cried, you know, because the Japanese cast, I think they had a feeling that they were never going to have this kind of a thing before. They had worked together for so long and here they were from the movie to the TV show and everything. We had 10 rap parties on that thing. And, and like I say, people were hugging and crying at each one. And that one, I really felt, oh my God, we just really let these people, let the entire cast down. And I wish we could have figured out the show. I don't think anybody really wanted to see it. <laughs> that was the other big part of it. Do things people want to actually see. But yeah, that was, that I considered like a, I don't know why I took it so personally. I had nothing to do. I was like the lowest writer on the totem pole. But yeah, that I thought was a failure. And then frankly, I'm tough on myself. I'm probably the toughest on myself. I'm tougher on myself than anybody in the world. And people give me notes and I'm like, yeah, I know, I know, I know. You know, that it's that I'm always looking for, like, how can I make this better and everything. I, the joke was that at the uh, premiere of uh, Princess and the Frog, we're done with the movie. It's played to audiences. We're at the premiere. Everybody's in tuxedos and stuff. And they said, hey, Rob, what did you think? And I said, well, I have notes. 
because <laughs> yeah. I still thought like I still to this day think, OK, there's a couple of scenes we can make just a little bit better. And that kind of I nurture that because I think that gives me an edge because I'm always trying to make everything just a little, little, little bit better. I tend to when I'm working on projects, I'm always getting up at 4 a.m to write new stuff. Now that I'm directing and writing projects, I'm for myself as a writer, I'm a very tough director. And for myself as a director, I'm a very tough writer. So I'm always challenging myself as a director to direct better, do better stuff, you know, whatever. Why isn't this Citizen Kane? What's wrong with you? And as a director, I'm like, well, if you write Citizen Kane for crying out loud, I will direct it. And so that that is a good kind of creative spiral. But yeah, everything is in a little way a failure and everything's a little bit of a success. If they take you to good places that you don't want to, yeah, you don't want to spiral to the point of just being, people will freeze up. People will get like writer's block. Or, for me, the spiral is to just get better, to just keep going, to not take the audience for granted. That really there's a, a lot of times there's, I'm often in movies where I think, Boy, I wish this guy had taken a little bit more time, you know, whatever, with this moment. It could have been so much better or whatever. I will have notes on other people's movies. And I always know that I am in my own audience, you know, that there's a kid like me. There's a little, whatever, 16-year-old wise guy from Cranbrook who's sitting in the audience going, oh, that sucks. Why didn't that guy work harder? And I so don't want to be on the business end of that. That's what keeps me up. One terrible thing that people in Hollywood do that you shouldn't do is that you sit there on like RottenTomatoes.com. When they announce your movie, the reviews will trickle in. And so you'll get, oh, okay, two reviews came in and they're both fresh tomatoes. You have 100% Rotten Tomato rating. And then bling, oh, one, one more will come in. It's like, oh, you dropped down to 60 and oh, you're up to 75. You know, whatever, with each new one that comes in, you just sit there and you'll just hit refresh and go... And there were, I don't know, 250 reviews of Frog. I've memorized every single negative one. <laughs> you know? And some of them, you read them and you go like, yep, you nailed it. I wish I had worked a little harder on that or figured out a solution to that problem. Some of them are unsolvable problems. But most of the time, you're just saying, man, I so don't want to get that review that it is worth just keeping going. And, you know, it's interesting you talk about spirals and especially negative spirals. There's this great thing. I don't know why I find it inspirational. It shouldn't be, but it's just wonderfully inspirational to me, which was Michael Jordan accepting the award for athlete, you know, lifetime achievement award for athlete. And he basically his speech, he gave a list of everybody who ever doubted him from his like JV coach to like family members to every player who took a notch out of him to everybody who looked down on, at him in any way all through his career because he says all of those people, basically like he was trying so hard to prove them wrong that the only inevitable outcome was to become the greatest basketball player of all time. And I kind of like that. I don't, like I say, I don't take things personally. Now I've gotten to the point where I really don't care what people think, but I do like it as a tool of blackboard material. Like when somebody says something bad about your team or counts you out. The entire team rallies around that one article and then you kind of pat it and you go out and practice hard and you, you're sitting there in the huddle and you um, and everybody's quoting the thing. Yeah, you're going to prove you wrong. And then off you go and it gives you that extra juice to work. I use that all the time. And my friends and family will tell you, tell you that the worst thing you can say to me is, is great job. 
you know, like, is to compliment me. Wow, Rob, I really like the movie. Okay, oh, yeah, 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 whatever. What didn't you like? Oh, man, that uh, that's like poison me. So if you say like, oh, hey, you know, I'm always asking, okay, well, if you could change anything, what would you change? Or if you, was there any point where you were a little bit bored? Or was there, what could I have done better? And I hate to, but it is like, it's an aim high thing. I hate to say, but it is a like that you are always just trying to, you don't want to get complacent and you want to drive your internal engine to, to do wonderful things. And the only way you get to wonderful is to just take all the steps and really be serious about every little step you take. Yeah. It's really interesting. I stand the same way. I also don't like when people tell me it's perfect. Yes. Oh, good, good, good. Tell me something that's, I, I always say like, I'm okay with constructive feedback. In fact, I encourage it. Please give it to me because I know there's always room because there's always, uh, you can always be a better version of yourself for something. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. There's this hilarious Matthew McConaughey speech when he was at the uh, Academy Awards. And he said, I am, I think he said, there's another Matthew McConaughey that's me two years from now that's even better than the Matthew McConaughey before me. I'm one step on the way to a more perfect Matthew McConaughey. And everybody looked at it like it was crazy, but I knew exactly what he was talking about. Yes, absolutely. I'm on Rob Edwards version 5.0. You know, I got a release coming in. <laughs> I got some bug fixes and so, you know, whatever. I'm still working the software and I'm hoping to get to like, you never get to perfection, but I'm hoping to get to like, oh yes, this is just, I hit the ball perfectly in the sweet spot and, and man, it just dropped right two inches away from the hole. I think that's what life is about. And once you stop doing that, I think then, yeah, then it's just boring. It's just like, okay, I might as well just go go fishing, just go sailing. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I forget where I heard it from, but there's this quote just basically saying, if you're not growing, you're dying. 100, 100, yeah, absolutely. That, st- what is it, stagnation? What was it, um, adapt and survive, stagnate and die. Yeah, that you should, like a shark, just always keep the tail moving and give yourself goals. I did have this one strange point in my career. I think it was after... Treasure Planet. Treasure Planet had been nominated and In Living Color had been nominated. One of my goals in my career was to have an Academy Award nomination and an Emmy Award nomination. And I'd done it, I'd done it before I was, I think it was like 33 or something like that, 32, 33. I was relatively young and I had two kids at the time. So I was, I was married. I was like, okay, I'm living in Beverly Hills and driving a nice car, you know, whatever. And I thought, okay, this is what I had dreamed of when I was a senior at Cranbrook. And now I'm here, and now what's next? And I had nothing. I had I had zero dreams. I was just like, oh, it, I will feel so great when I get here. And I was like, no, I need more stuff. I need to give myself bigger goals and some more stuff. I, I need to not be at ease with myself because the journey was far from over. And I wanted to do some more fantastic things. Fortunately, in my path, I didn't know at the time, was, you know, Fresh Boys, uh, Princess and the Frog, and some other really, truly wonderful projects. But that was a big challenge. I mean, it's something that I never will ever ever do again. You know, now I have just like, I want to be the king of Siam or whatever. But I, I want to, I do have like, you know, big dreams that I'm always striving towards. But the biggest one is to just be a better to be a better me, to continue the road that everything, don't sleep on my own abilities because I I do get better at things. Things get easier as I go. Ideas are easier to come by. Things or problems are easier to fix. And I have to just kind of, okay, what is going to keep me awake? What am I worried about? How can I make this now that I know that I can do 
this level of work, how can I up my game even more? And then it gets fun again, because then it's like, oh, good, a challenge. I can take that on, like, you know, seventh grade and just jump into it, knowing that at the end, if I even get close to what I hope to achieve, it'll be a, an amazing achievement. All right, I'll, I'll always be looking for a next uh, next version of Rob Edwards. <laughs> there you go. Get a new update. Every single 6.0, 6.0 is coming out, coming out soon. Well, Rob, hey, this has been an amazing conversation. Two more questions for you. One okay. is, what's some recent projects that people should be on the lookout for? Oh, I will tell you, like, for the Cranberg crowd, I gave the commencement speech last summer in June. It is online on the website, and I'm hysterical, so you should check it out. It was a really good uh, commencement speech, so I'm, I'm very proud of that. Easy to find. It's on the Cranberg website. Just search around. Professionally, I'm doing a, of course, there's a project they can't talk about. That's the funny thing about animation is most of the stuff you cannot talk about at all but i'm doing a i have a movie that is at the animation stage it's based on life of our lord a book that dickens wrote about the it's a story of jesus and it's being done in korea and there's some fantastic i don't know if i can announce the stars i don't know if they've announced them yet but they're all like these british sirs I'll say Academy Award winners, at least three of them, and geez, an Avenger and <laughs> and a kid who is just amazing and who was just in a recent movie that was really phenomenal. So read the tea leaves or maybe by the time this comes out, I can actually say who's in it. I'm also working on a movie uh, called, it's about two sneakers, it's a hip hop toy story. It's about two sneakers that get lost in New York, separated and lost in New York. And that's a ton of fun. We're about to announce the cast for that. And the cast is amazing. I tend to luck out. I think that people like my writing. Currently, Lawrence Fishburne's in it, and DJ Mustard is doing the music. So LMA is in it, and uh, Roddy Rich and Sway Lee. We've got just some amazing recording artists that we've signed that are doing it. I just found out that we have two Olympian athletes, skateboarders, that have just signed in to, to do it because all of the characters are kind of represented by shoes. And so that's cool. And as part of it, what I'm hoping happens is that Nike will release, Nike, who is a producing partner on this, is going to uh, release uh, some special edition sneaks, shoes. So that is fun. I have a short film called The Park Bench at parkbenchfilm.com, which just won Sonoma and was is a jury selection in a bunch of stuff. I'm taking that to the Pan-African Film Festival in a couple of weeks. It is getting amazing reception and it was fun to make. It was just like a great something to do during quarantine <laughs> and it just came out amazing. It's so much fun to, to, to do. So that's going to be great. And then there are some other projects that are kind of in the in the seedling stage that are coming up. What's interesting that's happened uh, recently is that there were all these projects I had just being like, hey, can I do this project that says positive things about African-Americans or like a black anime, you know, like a, a action film or some stuff like that. And all the time I would just get this uh, terrible brushback of who wants to see that, Rob? And I had this project and it was like Chadwick Boseman and uh, Michael B. Jordan. And they were like, who are they? And then Black Panther comes out and they're like, hey, Rob, can you get that Chadwick Boseman project going now? I'm like, I can't get Chadwick on the phone now. <laughs> You're like, you should have bought the project. When we had it, we would have been the next in line. And the fun now is everybody is saying like, hey, Rob, we want to do some. We know what projects you've been trying to do all these years. 
we would like to do this. So a lot of people, you know, the phone just rings off the hook. And and so I'm, I'm knee deep in wonderful stuff that I can't wait for everybody to see. I'm on social media, so I'll be announcing things as they come. I am Rob Edwards everywhere, Twitter, Instagram, everything. And then I have my own website that is down right now, but it will be up soon, robedwards.net. So yeah, I'm everywhere. <laughs> I'm easy to find and I've always got fun stuff going on. So yeah. Yeah, lots of fun, exciting things going on. Working 10, 10 plus projects at a time, it sounds like. <laughs> yep, absolutely. So just to close us off, Rob, oh, yeah. who is someone you want to hear next on this podcast? Ooh, I want to hear from Renee Goldsenberry. I think that would be fantastic. I was just recently listening to the Hamilton soundtrack again, and she's just a nightingale. She's amazing. And let's see. Mitt Romney, can you get him on? <laughs> I'd love to hear about his experiences. But yeah, you know, there's uh, yeah, there's a couple that are really amazing. But I would start. I would love to hear her story about what her experiences at Cranbrook were like. I also got to meet Kim Dowdell. She gave the Kingswood commencement speech when I gave the Cranbrook one. And she's amazing. She designs airports and stuff, you know. And she was just super fun to talk to. And one of those one of those just amazing people that would be great to share her with your audience. I'm sure they would get the kick out of it that I did. But yeah, that, that's my short list. <laughs> A friend of mine from Cranbrook, Ben Connolly, he sent me this article. He said that Daniel Goldsberg, but the Pentagon Papers, that he was a Cranber grad. And it, it's interesting to me because a lot of times you just feel disconnected and you, you hear about these wonderful people who did these astounding things. That's one reason I absolutely love this idea of like going back, finding these people, because there are just so many, yeah, just astounding people. Like I say, so many people are super competitive and then they get out there and they, they do amazing things. You know, in my class, there's like um, Robert Niederlander, at the Niederlander organization. He's doing international plays. He produced Hamilton. So there you have two, you know, <laughs> two alumni, uh, yeah, work, work in there, work in the middle uh, and making the greatest play of all time. Really fun when stuff like that happens. And, and we can all bask in the glow and say like, yeah, hey, I went there. I wonder, yeah. They walked the same campus as me. They, they avoided the, uh, the, the gateway of friendship just like I did, you know, so very fun. Exactly. I mean, some people listen to this podcast, now they're going to look out for your name in the credits. There you go. <laughs> they're there gonna, you they're, go. They're, they're going yes. to stay, stay in the theater, sit down, and just look for your name. Exactly. And take pride, knowing that Dag Bovey taught me too, and whatever. And yeah. And if they know Fran, if they know Miss Pangborn, the librarian, or Chris Olson, Doc Jeff Welch, or everybody knows Charlie Shaw. But yeah, it's all those guys. We all share those guys in common, and they all know, they've all seen their share of kids, and they all do great work with them. Very fun. Excellent. Amazing time, Rob. Thanks for calling the show. I really appreciate it. Uh, it's been my pleasure. This has been Aim High, Kramer Kingswood's alumni podcast. If you like this episode, we'd really appreciate if you could take a few seconds to subscribe wherever you listen and leave us a five-star review. This helps a lot in getting the word out and making the podcast easier to find. For any feedback or guest requests, please send an email to robert at alumni.fm. Thank you so much for listening and catch you soon.